Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. Hey, I want to say two things before we jump to our scripture. Number one, house church. I know if you're new, walking into somebody's house might feel a bit intimidating and a little bit more like you're on the spot. Please do it anyway. (laughs) It's a good stretch. It's important. It helps us build community and be known and we cannot do this thing by ourselves. This is not an individual faith. And so go to a house church next week. Um, And then number two, and this is really important, I wanna celebrate it and I want to remind you, our family ministry team has worked incredibly hard to open up our preschool during the 9 a.m. service. So up until two weeks ago, we only had preschool at the 10.30 service. Now we have both nursery and preschool available at both services. And so if you have a preschooler in your family, I want to encourage you, consider the 9 a.m. service uh, instead of the 10.30. It will help get you back for nap time. We all know the importance of that. But it also helps us balance out our two services a little bit more, make sure that there's room for everyone. And so I want to encourage you, consider uh, coming to the 9 a.m. service. And let's just really celebrate and say thank you to our family ministry teams um, who, yeah... Uh, really, really grateful for all of you who serve and all of you who sometimes sit in an empty room because there's no one who comes for that service, so thank you. Uh, All right, we've got two scripture readings today. They are from the Gospels. Whenever we read from the Gospels, we like to stand uh, either in spirit or uh, with our bodies if you can, and uh, stand because this is where we hear the living word of Christ addressing us personally, and so let's listen as we read from John 5 and John 1. But my purpose is not to get your vote and not to appeal to mere human testimony. I'm speaking to you this way so that you will be saved. John the Baptist was a torch, blazing and bright, and you were glad enough to dance for an hour or so in his bright light. But the witness that really confirms me far exceeds John's witness. It's the work the Father gave me to complete. These very tasks, as I go about completing them, confirm that the Father, in fact, sent me. The Father who sent me confirmed me, and you missed it. You never heard his voice. You never saw his appearance. There's nothing left in your memory of his message because you do not take his messenger seriously. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me, And here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. And this is also the Gospel of John from the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. 
the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So we're walking through the five acts of God's big story, this giant story told across five acts and across millennia. And uh, we're looking at a story that helps us make sense of our own little stories. Um, God's story, God's big, big, big story, it widens us, it expands us, it helps locate us in something larger than the, the triumphs and the failures of our lives. Sometimes our lives get so insular, so focused on ourselves, so little, and being a part of God's big story helps expand us so that, say, for example, when the football team that you've rooted for since you were four years old loses a 27 to nothing point lead in the first half and loses, you have something larger to bring you back into the next day, and you can move on with your life. I'm fine. We need to be expanded beyond ourselves. We need to be located in something broader and more, uh, more, more big, something that brings us into the great countries of grace and redemption and resurrection. And so that's why we're telling this story. We looked at Act 1, creation. God creates in the beginning. And then Act 2, the fall into sin. The power of death is on the loose. And then Act 3, uh, God's promise to restore again. And then Act 4. Finally, Advent comes to an end, and we enter Christmas. Jesus, the baby, breaks the silent night, a vulnerable, helpless, tender child into a crisp, cold night to say that God has come to us. Act four, God has come. This is the epiphany, the mystery of Emmanuel, God with us. If you remember way back in the beginning of the story, we said God created the force of the world with love. This capital L, giant love, is how the world gets its start, but of course we wander away from that love. And so I love how Kenneth Tanner puts it. Father Kenneth Tanner has this great uh, quote here about where we are in the story. Imagine Satan's sense of checkmate, he says. He gets all humanity to turn away from God, to walk away from love, but then God becomes one of us. And God does not give up on what he becomes. Good news, good news. And so God is here. That's what we celebrate in this season of Epiphany, and God being here brings things to light that we hadn't seen before. And so now that God is right in front of us, we start to see more clearly how God is, who God is, how God has always been in Jesus. We get a glimpse of how God ticks and what God is really like, the perfect picture, Scripture says in Colossians, of all that God has to say. This is why Jesus is the Word of God, the capital W, Word of God. We have lots of words of God, but Jesus is the ultimate revelation of all God has to say. And so as Brian Zahn says, all that God couldn't say through a book, he says in a life. He sends us the living word. 
and Jesus becomes the word of God. The word was with God, and the word was God. And I think this is what is meant by one of the most provocative verses to me in all of the Bible, which is John 5, 39. It's what Katie read. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Wow, how often we fall into that trap, right? But Jesus is standing here in front of us saying, me, all of it, the whole big story, rewind all the way to act one if you want, it too points to me, act two points to me, act three points to me, all of it, all of it, every verse of it is about me and points to me. And so we want to read this text that way. Last week I told you that the Bible is a joke, right? I came back from respite and said, the Bible's a joke. <laughs> and what I meant by that is that a joke often says something more than what is actually said. You know, a great joke almost always requires a certain degree of unstated background knowledge. If you don't have that background knowledge, you'll miss the joke. And so New Testament scholar Peter Lightheart talks about this in his book, Deep Exegesis, and he gives us the, the image of Shrek. You all know the movie Shrek, right? Shrek is loaded with fairy tales and uh, references to nursery rhymes and all of these things. If you don't have any background knowledge in fairy tales, most of Shrek makes no sense to you, right? So it's like, do you know the Muffin Man? Yeah, he lives down on Drury Lane, right? All of these things are loaded in there but not actually explained, and that's what actually makes them funny. That's how great pieces of art work. They rely on hearing more than what is actually stated aloud. And so without a lifetime of exposure to the deeper story, we sometimes actually miss the real point. You know, one of the things that's funny to me uh, and that I also empathize with is that we tend to be very proud of taking the Bible literally. You know, reading it for just what it says. The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? And we read it at this surface level. But great masterpieces almost never just work on the surface level. Ask any artist, ask any writer. They're doing lots of things all at once, and the deeper you read, the more you see. And so the writers of the Bible are working at multiple levels. They're telling a story, but it's just one layer of a larger story, and they're actually just dropping hints. That's actually a prized ability of the great scripture writers, is that they can just drop these hints that are pointing to things all around the edges of the story. And so Lightheart says it this way, if God is telling us more than one story at the same time, do we not want to hear them all? And of course we do. And so we're going to find that when the old stories that we've already looked at, the Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 stories, when they get held up to the light of Jesus, they suddenly take on new meaning. They suddenly mean something they did not mean before. They are granted a new significance, and the epiphany light shines on them. God revealed in flesh changes the sense of what they're actually saying. It's an epiphany. It's a light shining of revelation that changes things in ways we couldn't see before. So if you brought a Bible with you uh, physically, uh, what a concept, right? Uh, then I invite you to open it. You can open it to John chapter 1. If you didn't, that's totally fine. Uh, we're going to put it up on the screen as well. Um, but it will, if you have a physical Bible, flip through it because it will actually help you get a sense of what it is that I want to say here today. So our task is to read the Bible through the light of Jesus. We do this because, as Benjamin said in our opening words, Jesus not only wants to restore all things, he wants to restory all things. He wants to change the story. 
in a way that makes it mean something new. And so we're going to try to uh, do that. We're going to try that out for the next few weeks. And we're going to start by rewinding all the way back through Act 4 and Act 3 and Act 2, all the way back to Act 1, and we find ourselves back at creation. How does Jesus restore creation? Well, if we look at Genesis chapter 1, when the Bible begins, we get these words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the author of Genesis, or the authors of Genesis, they continue telling this creation story, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. And then we go way, way, way forward in human history, and uh, we get to the Gospel of John. John, when he tells the story of Jesus, he absolutely tells it in ways that are loaded with hints and winks and nudges. He is telling a joke, right? Look at how John uses the first one through five of his gospel. Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says, in the beginning, the word already existed. Genesis, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and John, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. John, the Word gave life, and his life brought light to everyone. Genesis, then he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and John adds, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot extinguish it. And so right from the start, John is saying that Jesus, who is not introduced until Act 4, had something to say about what happened in Act 1. He was there. All things are created through him, and nothing has been created that was not created through him. Jesus, John is insistent, right from the start, is a creator. That's why he's invoking all of this creation imagery. He's echoing Genesis to say that among the many things Jesus does, he also is going to be a creator. And that's how he starts his gospel. And then John does something that I think is just fascinating. It re-enchants me with the beauty of Scripture. We'll spend the rest of our time looking at it. If we flip to the next chapter of John, we get to John 2. John 2, Jesus walks into a wedding at Cana. Y'all know the story. He turns water into wine, right? Cool thing to do. If you had that ability, think of the economic possibilities, right? You just turn on the tap, all of a sudden you got like Pinot Noir right there, right? Amazing. He turns water into wine. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Wine, in the Jewish consciousness, is associated with creation, You step back from the outpouring, you see the wine, and you say, it is good, right? It's a symbol throughout all of Scripture of abundance, of goodness, of feasting, of blessing. And this is how Jesus gets his start. What he's doing here in this story is taking current reality, water, changing it to a different reality, wine. He is creating, right? And when he creates like this, his disciples see his glory. Something is revealed. Something is epiphanied in that story. They believe in him afresh. And John calls this the first of his signs. Flip to John 4, chapter 54. We get the healing of the official's son. There is an official. His son is sick. Jesus comes and heals him. And the way John tells the story is that this is the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. Healing is an epiphany 
a manifestation of the way things were always supposed to be. It is a reminder that way back before sin and death entered the story, children didn't get sick, right? If we could rewind, this is Jesus saying, go, go, go way back before sin and death have their say in the story, and you're going to find that children are well and that adults are well, that all things, in fact, are well. And so the healing is amazing. It's a miracle in its own right. It's so meaningful for the official and his son. But it's operating at a broader level, which is to say that when Jesus gets into the scene, things go to how God intends them to be right from the start, right? And so he's talking about heaven and earth here. And this is the second sign. Now, I hope your brain is starting to ask the question, wait, we've got a first sign? We've got a second sign? Are there more signs? Why is John numbering things? What's he up to here, right? Well, at this point, he stops explicitly numbering things because, of course, he's just hinting. He's just wanting you to follow the clues. He stops numbering things, but he keeps telling miracle stories. So if we follow those miracle stories, we see something fascinating happens here. Uh, we get to chapter 5. Jesus heals a man during the Sabbath, which is, by the way, the one day that God also is not supposed to be working, right? So he gets in trouble with the Jewish leaders. You can't heal someone on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds basically to say, look, my father's always working, and I'm I'm always working too. It's a way of saying, like, yes, I fulfill the law, but I don't submit to the law. In fact, the law submits to me. <laughs> I'm the Lord of the scriptures, right? Uh, I am what the scriptures are pointing to. They are all about me. And so he heals this man, healing a sign of creation. And so I guess this is the third sign. Chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And what we have here is, an, again, amazing story in its own right. Jesus takes some bread, some fish, and in the hands of Jesus, what was little suddenly becomes more, and there is more than enough for everyone. And that's an amazing story, but I wonder how Jesus isn't just doing a cool trick so much as he's speaking to a broader reality. If we go way back to Act 1, if you remember, part of Adam and Eve's task was to steward the bounty of creation so that everyone had enough. Jesus takes bread and says, when I get my hands on this bread, there's enough food for everyone because that's how God always intended the world to be. There would be enough food for everyone. A properly ordered creation is one in which there is enough to go around. And this is the fourth sign. And then right after this, Jesus departs the scene. He walks on water. How fancy. Like, he's walking on water. Amazing. But remember what water means in Scripture. Water is almost always a sign of the chaotic pre-creation, right? So if you go back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created, and it goes on Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep water, right? So the deep water represents chaos. God above the water represents God's mastery over creation. So what do we get here? Jesus walking above the water. You see what's happening here? Jesus is the master of creation. He, in fact, takes creation and reshapes it, reforms it in what it is that he is wanting to do with it. He uh, is the Lord of creation, and this is the fifth sign. And by the way, I grew up in a charismatic environment where we talked a lot about miracles, and I believe in miracles, and, uh, and I'm thankful for that, that background that I have. 
But I think one thing that I'm noticing here is that when God, when Jesus is doing these miracles, he's doing them as part of his larger revelation, his larger storytelling, right? It's not just an arbitrary, oh, I'll go do this and I'll go do this. It's like they're telling a story. And so we follow the through line of that. And so this is the fifth sign. And then we get to chapter nine. Jesus heals a man born blind. And uh, this story is loaded with things. It's loaded, among other things, with creation words. And so if you look at the words that I italicized here, in the healing of the man born blind, Jesus says things like blindness and sight, like day and night, like light and dark, like water and birth. These are creation words, and Jesus is loading them into the text, and he says, this man has not sinned, rather he was born blind so that God might be revealed. Remember the first sign? The disciples saw it, something about God was revealed, and he was glorified. They see something, an epiphany they had not seen before, and Jesus says, this man is blind, Uh, he was born blind so that God might be revealed and glorified in this situation. And then what does he do? He stoops down. He takes some mud, some dust, some dirt, And he rubs it on the man's eyes, and the man suddenly can see, right? Have we ever heard a story before of God stooping down, taking dirt, taking dust, taking mud, and making something out of it, right? This is a Genesis story. Jesus is recreating, and this is the sixth sign. And then we get to chapter 11. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. And rather than going to heal him, Jesus launches into, like, a long speech, Just what you want when you die, you want your your best friend to just suddenly start talking about things unrelated to uh, your actual death, right? Uh, Jesus just starts talking. And, uh, And then look at what he says. He says, the Son of God might be glorified through this, right? We get this same epiphany language. And then what does he start doing? He uses creation imagery. He says things like, are there not 12 hours of daylight Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light, but those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. He uses words like asleep and awaken. This is creation imagery. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and this is the seventh sign. Seven. If you know anything about Jewish numbers, seven is the number of uh, completion bring something to fullness. And notice that the first sign was pretty cool. He turns water into wine, but by the seventh sign, people are coming out of graves. There's a progression here. There's an intensity here. There's a recreation happening here. And then chapter 12 has no signs. 13, no signs. 14, no signs. 15, 16, 17, 18, there are no signs. And then Jesus is crucified. And we would think the story has come to an end. So if there are seven signs, can you think of another story in the Bible where seven plays a role? (laughs) Right? The beginning of all things. Jesus creates in seven days. And uh, so seven makes a creation. Seven signs, perhaps, makes a full creation. And that is how Jesus comes before Genesis, right? Jesus pre-exists creation. He is a part of the whole creation. By him, things are created and recreated. Seven, fullness, completion. But the story's not done. 
Because what happens on Easter Sunday? Resurrection. Jesus gets out of the grave. He follows Lazarus' example, and he is resurrected to life. God rises from the dead to This, then, is the eighth sign. If seven is completion of the first uh, week, if seven days makes a full week, if seven signs makes a full week, then what would eight mean? We've got a whole new week beginning. We've got a whole new day in a whole new week. Eighth sign is to say, I have recreated anew. And Jesus on the cross, what does he say? Behold, I make all things new. Jesus has recreated the world. And the story ends like this. He puts away his grave clothes, and he wanders out into the garden. And Mary Magdalene meets there, finds him wandering out of the tomb And she sees him, and she mistakes him to be the what? Do you get the joke? The text is a joke, loaded with imagery. Jesus has recreated the world. I want to invite us to reflect on this for a moment, so you can just close your eyes or enter into your own heart for a moment, because that's cool. John has baked in to his gospel something that is incredibly subtle, but incredibly powerful, that says that Jesus has brought the whole order of the first creation to an end, and in him, a new creation is bursting forth, is, is upon us, a new age has dawned, the age in which God is bringing heaven to earth. But here's why it matters for us. As we start out a new year, I wonder where recreation might be needed in your story. And I wonder if there are any places of the old order, the old week, that Jesus left behind with the grave clothes. And he says, I've made something new. Where might you be invited into that newness this morning? And is there a situation, a struggle, a lack of resources or a blindness or a loss that God actually might be redeeming in order to reveal who God is in your life? finally, as we think about where we started MLK Day tomorrow, might there be a place that you can anticipate and participate in the renewal of all things, in the work to bring heaven to earth as Jesus makes all things new?
to encourage you to hold questions like that before God this week. Just have a conversation with God about it and see what comes up for you. See where Jesus' recreation of the world might become flesh and blood in you that can move into the neighborhood. Amen.